No fish have been harmed in the making of this podcast. Well, welcome aboard, everybody. Thank you for joining me on Talking Bass in PDX, the Bass and Warm Water Forum, as we talk fishing in the Northwest. Hi, I'm Don Clark, and I'll be your host. Well, I'd like to thank everybody for taking time to listen to the podcast. We're continuing to grow, and you know that the bass fishing community here in the Northwest is very strong. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and add us to your social media links so that others may listen to Talking Bass in PDX. The podcast is on many platforms, such as iTunes, Spotify, and many others. You can Google the podcast, Talking Bass in PDX, and listen to it right on your laptop. Well, now that the weather is warming up, days are getting longer, we've changed our clocks, it's time to get fishing. I've heard of several nice bass being caught on the upper and lower Willamette. The numbers are still a little, little low, and the water temperature is still a bit low, but it is definitely heading up. I've also heard of a really nice 20-plus inch largemouth that was caught up in Washington at Silver Lake in the past week or so. So those shallower lakes are starting to heat up, and it is time to get fishing. Well, as many of you know, I started the podcast because of a radio show that ran for 23 years hosted by Hobart Manns, the Outback Angler. I was a loyal listener to the Northwest Fishing Report, but like many of the radio shows, if you missed any information during the show, it was gone. Yeah, you couldn't get it back. Maybe you could call the radio station and they could get it to you, but it was pretty much out in the atmosphere. Well, I started the podcast just for that reason. I wanted to interview as many fishermen, as many folks that like fishing, information out there about fishing techniques and about products that are available to us so that we'll have them to go back to and listen to them many, many times, take notes as we needed, and have that information available. Well, on this episode, we're kind of going to step away from bass fishing a little bit. This episode has a very special guest. Many of you may know him by his name, Outback Angler. Well, during my interview with Steve Fleming's Back a few weeks ago from Maha Outfitters, he brought up the name Hobart Mans. And I remember that Hobart was the radio host that I had listened to for many, many years. And the reason that I'd started the podcast. I really wanted to talk to him. I wanted to interview him on the show. After contacting a friend of mine who contacted Hobart for me, Hobart agreed, come on the show. And I would just like to upfront thank Hobart for coming on Talking Bass and PDX and sharing many of his stories with us about the many, many years that he has lived here in the Northwest. Hobart is a native, by the way, of the Portland area. This episode is a bit longer, so sit back, get ready. This is one of those relaxing, listen to some funny stories type episodes, and I hope everybody enjoys it. I do want to add a side note. Many of these stories happened a long, long time ago, and like many, many fishermen, they may or may not be true, 
But sit back, relax, and here he is, Hobart Mans, the Outback Angler. Well, I'd like to welcome to Talking Bass in PDX, Hobart Mans. Hobart, welcome to the program. Well, I'm very happy to be here. Well, it is quite an honor to uh, to talk to you this afternoon, and um, you know we've been talking a little bit before and talking about some stories. So I'd like to just kick it off and um, you know talk kind of about the beginning when you started fishing when you were really really young. And by the way, you know I I let folks know that you know you grew up in the Portland area, so this show is really going to be focused on the Northwest. But feel free to talk about other states that you would have fished in also. Well, I have traveled, fortunately, from Alaska to Southern California, Nevada, uh, on fishing the Caribbean, Japan, uh, Korea, Hokkaido. Uh, I fished out. Quite a, quite a few different places throughout the years. But I grew up fishing in Oregon, and from the standpoint of being hooked, I suppose the best story I could tell you, and it's not a story, these would be true happenings that went through my life cycle. Uh, my first real got hooked on fishing was, I'm 12 years old, it's 1942, it's World War II, and fish are food. My family were relatively poor, and one of the first jobs I ever had was pulling weeds for a truck gardener in the Park Rose area between the the Sandy Boulevard and the Columbia River, and there's a slough complex all the way out through that flat. We would work the farm fields next to that slough. And consequently, a 12-year-old who's impatient with almost everything when lunchtime rolled around every day, we would eat our lunch on one of the bridges over the slough, and we would throw our breadcrumbs, or crusts, if you will, into the slough. Three, four days down the road, the carp started to show up at noon for their lunch, as well as ours. And we would throw the crumbs to them just to see how big the fish were. So I said, I got your number. And two days later, during my lunch hour, I whip out a homemade surface plug for designed for carp. And I had taken a piece of balsa wood about the size of a bread crust, painted it half brown and half white, put a long shank O'Shaughnessy hook through it, and tied it up to a piece of cutty hunk line and threw it off the bridge and let it float down with the other assorted crumbs. Lo and behold, Mr. Carp went up, and ate my surface bass plug, or carp plug, if you will, and we landed him, hand-landed him. And I had about four or five of those carp laying on the bank there, flopping around and everything else. And the other kids that were with us working were all laughing and giggling. And here comes Mr. Farmer. And the farmer came down and said, what are we doing? And we told him and showed him the fish we were catching, and he said, well, you're supposed to be resting in your lunch hour, not playing. And I said, oh, okay. <laughs> At that point, he said, don't worry about working this afternoon. Go ahead and fish because you're fired. And we had to go home and tell our parents that we got fired from our first big-paying job. And in those days, 15 cents an hour, a dollar a day for a 12-year-old was, boy, that was big change. 
So three days later, he called us up and brought us back to work. But I never went fishing during my lunch hour after that point. And the lesson learned in life, <laughs> I never gave up fishing, but I didn't do it on somebody else's nickel. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I love that story. I, I, I heard you talking about it the other day, and I, um, I was so surprised that uh, no matter who the employer was, that they just didn't see the value of, uh, of fishing, no matter what time of day it is. So the, the well, you got to got to remember this was a different time, and he was from Italy, and he had grown and worked very hard his life, and they didn't uh, he didn't see us playing during lunch hour, even though it wasn't on his nickel. Uh, it was supposed to be resting, and that's what they did in the old country, and you're going to do it here. And <laughs> believe me, from that point on, that summer we did. Uh, catfish in those days were something really, really good to eat because meat was rationed. And with a ration on meat and uh, knowing what I knew about catfish at that point, which wasn't a lot except that I knew where they were, um, we would go down, I would have to profess, we would skip school and go down and catch a bucket full of catfish, 20, 30, and share it with our family and the neighbor families. Um, my grade school principal caught me several times coming home and uh, proceeded to interrogate me about how it was the fishing and how many did you catch and what you use, et cetera. Um, Forty years later, he ran into me and paid me the greatest compliment I think I ever had in my life. He said, quite truthfully, he thought I was never going to grow up to be anything or anybody. And... I, he said that you were probably one of the biggest surprises in where you went and what you did of all my students, even though you skipped school. Of course, I'm not advocating anybody skipping school, but when you've got such a passion for fishing or any other type thing like that, I, I think sometimes you just have to follow it, you know? You, you, you have to follow that passion. And, I mean, you, you have been fishing for more than 50 years, so... Um, Closer I, to 70. So I was trying to be complimentary there. Um, now, you went off to um, to Korea there for a bit, at the, um, and, and tell me a little bit about your fishing when you got over to Korea. Well, that was a little different incident. I carried a collapsible five-piece a little casting rod with me that I could carry in my pack sack and gear. And it was five sections, and they were 18 inches long, so it was kind of folded up nicely. And I had a small casting reel line and a little box full of miscellaneous tackle. And once in reserve, uh, spring, nice weather, great, and the grass is green, and it smelled like I should be out fishing. I went down to the stream right behind where we were camped and proceeded to try and catch some fish. Now, the company commander knew I was a fishing nut at that point, and he is also a fishing nut, so he exchanged information whatever we could. And after about two hours of casting with no avail, I just figured my lures weren't heavy enough and they weren't getting down enough to where the fish were if there were any there. 
So I chose a heavier object for lure, and I pulled the pin and threw it in. Now, the pool that I was fishing exploded. It looked kind of like a landmine behind a destroyer. The pool exploded, fish flopping every place. I managed to capture a couple by hand, and I took them back to the commander and said, what are they? And we decided what kind of fish they were, kind of a pea mouth or a fish of that nature. And uh, he said, the only thing you probably learned today is that uh, you'll have more success the other way, but one thing is for sure, and that's that if you're going to be successful as a fisherman, there's got to be a jerk on one end of the line at least, you know. So <laughs> I've never forgotten that. That that's a great one. I <laughs> that is uh, I have I have not thought about that particular uh, weight methodology that you're talking about. Although I have seen some frustrated fishermen who probably would have agreed with you, and probably would have. Well, the only thing I, the only thing I wish wish to do at this point is that if you happen to be a friend of a game warden, um, that's a disclaimer because I could be the greatest fabricator of the truth you ever knew. There you go. I, and I did not put out a disclaimer before we started this interview, so there, there's, there's a disclaimer. So now you're you're back in the United States and and kind of starting your work career. And how did you get involved in the tackle business? Well, uh, 1958, late, I had been working with Safeway as in their uh, grocery store business. I really have always wanted to be around selling fishing tackle or connected with it in some fashion. And I saw an ad that they were building a new sporting goods store in the Portland area, 82nd and Halsey. And I walked into the store and said, have you hired all your help for the coming, you know, opening? And they said, we think so. And I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll make you a deal. I'll work for you for 30 days, do whatever you want, and if you think I'm any good, you can hire me and pay me what you think I'm worth because I want to sell fishing tackle. In today's world, you couldn't do that. But that's what I did. They hired me. I worked 30 days. They gave me some money at the end of the 30 days and and hired me at that point, and that started uh, my career in the tackle industry both as salesmen and, and for retail and wholesale and factory reps and all the little things that I did over the years. And so your learning, as it were, I guess, was uh, on-the-job training. Uh, you were there selling and, and looking at uh, different types of tackle and lures um, throughout all those years, I'm assuming. Uh, truly, and got hooked into... Uh, I'd look at something and say, this is, it ain't going to work. It'll never sell, you know. And so I would go out and collect collect specimens of things that I thought were insane or they weren't going to work or they didn't work or they were unusual or somebody unusual and famous uh, fished with the tackle. So I, I collected 
artifacts and fishing tackle for probably 50 years. That's how you got into collection, collecting antique tackle and that type of thing was was starting yes. off with these unusual yeah. things. Yep. What um, back in 1959, uh the ambassadors' 6,000s had been out for a couple of years, but their factory rep, for some reason, took a liking to me, and the factory sent me one with my name engraved on it. And I still have it, but that reel is probably, that was probably the linchpin of the start collecting miscellaneous things. Now, of those, um, uh, of those things that... Um, that well, let's just say that they're cool and they look neat, but they don't necessarily work for fishing. What's what's the oddest or weirdest one you collected? The oddest, weirdest is not really that old. About 15 years ago, Johnson, uh, the made reels, still they're still in the tackle business. They made a closed face reel. It was supposed to have all the new whistles and bells and everything. And when you took it apart and you looked at it, the first thing was they had a dirt remover system so it cleaned your line every time you cast. Well, in order for it to remove the dirt from your monofilament line, it had to use monofilament brushes, and the brushes had to be stiffer than the line so they would scrub it off. It also scrubbed the line in half, <laughs> and it would get cast, and it would break and cast and break and cast and break. Then the trough that it put the dirt into would eventually clog up from the amount of dirt and accumulation, and it wouldn't work, so you couldn't screw the, the cleaner in and out. And it was just a, a, a horrible, horrible design destined to failure, and you can't but wonder if the guy who was inventing it at the factory wasn't the son-in-law of the owner of the plant because anybody who'd hire somebody that would make something that atrocious had to have some other relationship besides uh, being a good engineer. So they put all the time and money into dyes, tooling production, and it wasn't on the market six months. That one is, uh, that's the pretty good one. I have never heard of that type of reel, and I'm sure that it didn't that it didn't last long, yeah. like you said. And, and I can't imagine going out there trying to cast, and your line is breaking, and you're you're trying to get trying to get anything done. Well, that must have been a frustrating. It, uh, it was an absolute disaster. I mean, it. I told my friends, I said, go buy yourself one or two of these because they're not going to be here next year. And, They're gone and, before, before you, before you ever have a chance to buy it. And do you remember? Was it an expensive reel, or were they fairly inexpensive? Oh, uh, they were in the thirty-dollar class for a closed face. Okay. At the turn of the century, twenty years yeah. ago. Yeah, that that would have been, uh, you know, not too expensive, but definitely would have, you know, you had to think about it a time or two before you bought it. So as you went through your years of working, you were telling me a story about how when the 800 lines came along and how did you get elected to start reporting um, the uh, the fishing reports? Well, when I worked for the sporting goods store on Halsey, Freeway Sporting Goods, 
we were one of the first doors that had an answering machine. And every day we would put on a one-minute interview or one-minute fishing update on all the streams in the local area, southwest Washington and Oregon northern coast in Portland. Um, put on a new loop tape every day, and we'd get, you know, 100 calls on who wants to know what fishing is where, whatever. And many years later, uh, somebody you may or may not know, but probably one of the better fishermen that I've ever been around, name is Pete Troy. He owned a series of restaurants and a fish uh, wholesale business in Portland. And he and I both were kind of sitting talking one day, and he said, let's start an 800 phone number, which had just been introduced at that time. We had the menu, you dial 800 and push 2 because you want to know how what the Nahalem River conditions are. And we'd give you a one-minute update on the Nahalem River. Or if you want to know Southwest Washington, we'd give you an update on that different number uh, off the menu dial. At any rate, we started that, and we were giving out really good information. We were getting 40, 50 phone calls a day of people wanting to know where to go, what to do, and and what have you. And I listened to the outdoor program on KEX religiously because I wanted to compare their information with ours. And one day, a lady called in and said, to the person who was running the program. Um, I've got two small boys that we want to go camping at Timothy Lake up on Mount Hood. And I would like to know how the fishing is for kokanee and what kind of equipment I need to use for the kids. And his response was, there are no kokanee in Timothy Lake. You need to go down the road to Crane Prairie. Now back out to Highway 97 and down through Redmond Bend and Lapine and then back into Crane Prairie. I kept wanting to say Timothy again, but she's left Timothy. She's going to Crane Prairie. Crane Prairie at that time did not have a major amount of kokanee. They had one little colony established in the Quinn River Arm, and that was it. And he didn't say Quinn River. He told her to go fish the Metolius arm of Crane Prairie. Well, the Metolius is a tributary on Lake Billy Chinook. So she's gone on a 300-mile tour down to the lake, back to another lake, and fishing in this other place. Uh, But he sent her on two wild goose chases. And the true story was Timothy Lake had an abundance of undersized kokanee. They had a limit of 25 fish a day. Every place else was 5 to 10. So she'd have been really better off to stay put and enjoy what was available. All he had to do was tell her to downsize her gear, basically. So that that's what I called the station the next day and said, the guy is nuts. He said, your people, you know, here, here, and here, all to no avail. I said, are you basing your information on your station's reputation, on putting out that kind of info. And he kind of stammered, stuttered, and said, I'll call you back in a day or two. How come you know so much? And I explained to him what I did and who I am or whatever. He called back and said, can you come in Saturday morning and do the program? 
<laughs> I said, well, come in. I don't know if I can do the program. He had an engineer, and he had an announcer, and eight incoming phone lines, and they all lit up within 30 seconds. 23 years later, I stopped doing it just because it was time to stop. And that was your launch into uh, into public uh, life, right? Uh, pretty much, yes. Now, behind the scenes, though, how many people were you calling a week or a day to get all that fishing information? We called 50 or 60 different uh, people up and down the coast, guides, uh, three times a week. Water conditions would change, so we'd change the information. Fish bite would be off down on the lower river, but they'd moved into the upper sections, places like the Cowlitz and the Sandy, and uh, they'll stack up on the Clackamas. And, uh, you, you know the, the routine. The fish run, and as the water drops, they hurry on upstream. So what was easy pickings down just above tidewater now gets to be cold water, and it's a little tougher chore. Now, even now, you still stay in touch with a few of those folks that were providing that information uh, back then, right? Uh, yes. I was fortunate enough to acquire a lifetime of good friends. I mean, really good friends. I still talk with uh, probably a dozen guides once, twice a month, once a week, depending on who. Uh, some of the store operators are still around, and I talk to them. And other other fishermen and other guides and other people uh, call me from time to time. I uh, I had a call two weeks ago from a, a person who I really don't know, but he's got my phone number from days when I was available. And he called me up to ask me about how old is this particular lure, and how do I maintain its condition? Now, he had kept my phone number, and I haven't changed it, for probably 30 years. And he wow. didn't know whether I was dead or alive, and he called to ask, and I answered and solved his problem, which I thought was quite flattering, seriously. Yeah, that is... Um... That, that's quite interesting that, that uh, someone just hung on to your phone number. Along the way, we, we were also talking about some tackle tips, and we got talking a little bit about worms earlier. T tell me a little bit about the uh, drunken worm story that you were that you were talking about. Well, that's re really not a story. It's a, it's a true event in one of the greatest fishermen, and I put him right in that top five in my entire life I've ever met. Uh, was a Bass and Panfish Club member, a crusty old guy. His name is Jack Blue, passed away a few years back. But a great man, absolutely great man. Quiet, quiet sense of humor, dry sense of humor. He didn't share too much information with anybody he f was fishing with. And you had to earn it to get it from Jack. <laughs> he was a World War II veteran, injured came back and got a job with the feds as a revenue agent. And he traveled all over the Northwest as a revenue agent looking for bootleggers or guys running stills. And he would come into your village or town and get a motel room and start talking about fishing. Where can I go? What can I catch? 
Uh, and he'd spend a lot of time in the taverns in the evenings uh, pumping people about fishing. And after the third or fourth night of talking about fishing, he'd finally say, you know where I can buy a bottle? And they'd fetch him a bottle from someplace and he'd arrest them. <laughs> but the drunken worms, he introduced me to drunken worms fishing for catfish. We would catch three and four times as many fish on drunken worms. And the drunken worms, he'd go down to the grain elevators in Portland and get two or three five-gallon bucketfuls of the grain beside the railroad or next to the silos that had fallen last fall, and they had gotten wet all winter, and the sun came out in the spring and started to heat them up. Now those that grain is fermenting. And the fermentation of the grain and the alcohol content, the worms are eating uh, whatever it was that had the alcohol, and they began to smell, have a scent, that no other worm had. And if we could get a half a dozen or a dozen of those, you were going to catch a lot of fish. They really, really worked. Uh, I don't have a secret formula. I can't tell you whether it was rye, wheat, barley, oats, or a combination thereof. But that is the greatest tackle bait I ever used in my life. You know, and that's that's because you and I, you know, we were talking about worms and, you know, the fact that we use them, you know, quite often when we're walleye fishing. And I had uh, and I had been talking about the fact that, uh, you know, to calm the worm down, sometimes I'll take it in my hand, and this somebody showed this to me, but we just slap our hands together, and that stuns the worm. But the um, the fact that you're you know, putting them in that grain, and so. In my mind, I'm thinking, boy, I wonder if the worms were cleaner and and there's not a lot of dirt on them and a little easier to use. Now, the, the scent part is probably true, and, and you know, that, that might help, but the thing that I don't like to get in my boat is all that dirt, so uh, I, may, I may try some grain. But you were telling me about a walleye guide of his way of stunning worms, and so um, tell me a little bit about that. Well, before I do that, I will also add, if you have an aversion to worms getting your boat dirty, uh, one of the other guide friends that I have, he takes all of his night crawlers and worms with him down to the boat launch when he's going fishing. He's got a couple of small cans, and he puts the worms out of the carton container into the can all of them bare naked with no uh, moss or grass or anything with them, and submerges that can of water, comes up with it about half full, and you get your worms out of a river bath instead of out of a bucket full of mud. His rationale between uh, the worms out of the, the bucket with the content and the bucket with water is the walleye are used to finding worms in the water for whatever reason, and they smell and taste like river water, not like a bucket of mud. And he did very well with that, using clean worms. Another good tip. Uh, you know, I mean, it, uh, I can see where, you know, if they're clean, you know, they're not going to look like they've been crawling just out of the bank, you know, because if they're in the water, and they're going to be, you know, kind of cleaned off. So. But 
And that's a natural presentation, which I approve truly. The closer in nature you get, the more fish. But at any rate, to answer your question about the, the worms wiggling, my first uh, experience with that was with a walleye guide on the Columbia River by the name of Alan Clark. He runs uh, Touche Clark. And he has been walleye fishing up there for probably 30 years now. One of the great people around. Um, he retired from the Forest Service as a small engine repair person. And he was mowing the grass in his front yard. And it got clogged up, and he reached in to pull the clog out. The motor whipped around and cut the end of his index and finger and thumb off. So now he's in, faced with the problem of trying to get the worms to hold still, but he can't feel them with the ends of those fingers because they got no feeling in them. And he would take in the boat, the first time I saw him doing it, I'm going, what the heck? He'd take and grab the worm and body slam it down on the, the floorboards or the deck or someplace on the boat on the floor about four times. And he'd pick up the poor dead limp worm at that point and thread the hook on and away he'd go and catch a fish. And finally I said, okay, Touche, you're putting me on, and I know you are. Why are you body slamming those worms to put them on the hook? <laughs> and he says, I don't want to tell you this, but I can't feel them anymore after I cut the end of my fingers off, and that's the only way I can get the hooks on. And as a professional guy, to have to admit <laughs> that he was an engine repairman and put his hand in the hole where the sign says don't uh, was kind of dumb. <laughs> Yeah, but I sure like the I sure like the body slamming of of worms. I <laughs> we're going to try it just to see what happens uh, to them. Well, it beats it beats trying to clap them because you may smash one or two. I uh, I haven't smashed them, but uh, yeah, I've always I've always worried about that, so I'm always kind of careful with it when I'm doing it. Now back to your radio career when you got started on air. Uh, I know you had a number of uh, partners. And I, I know a couple of them. Can you can you remind us of who all your partners were over the years? Well, Jack Glass uh, was there for quite a while. I had Clay Hood originally. And you're going to ask me somebody's name. Like I'm having a Freudian moment. A school teacher from Lake Oswego, coach and an outdoor writer, a really great man, uh, was also with me. But I'm, I'm at 90, I'm going to plead whatever it is at 90 we have when we have brain damage. There you go. <laughs> and, if, and if you remember it sometime throughout the interview, just, just let me know. Um, now, throughout the years of, of, of your radio show, you know, it was every Saturday morning, it was early in the morning, it seemed like it was always really difficult to get into the show. I know I tried over the years, and I might have gotten in once or twice over the years, but were the calls just constant throughout the years? Uh, at KEX, we had one of the highest ratings in the area, and for that time hour, we had the highest rating um, as far as listeners. And the program started that first day. We had eight lines, and they lit up in 
30 seconds or thereabouts. And I don't think that in the next 10 years there was, you know, you'd have you'd have six or eight calls waiting for the eight lines that you got. It was, and I don't mean it was ridiculous, and I don't mean to honk a horn, but we were definitely uh, the program that outdoor people listened to. It just, it was amazing, amazing. I had a secret, secret, not real secret probably to you, but if we had a day for whatever reason nobody was calling in and you had a blank segment coming up, I could always depend on, if I called Bud Hartman, I could get a segment interview to fill the blank space. If there was, you know, something, something, whatever it was, two feet of snow outside and nobody's going fishing. <laughs> oh, and Hartman yeah. would be there. There you go. I had not, uh, uh, Bud has been on the podcast and um, he, you know, I could, uh, I enjoy talking to him, and I enjoy his uh, his type of stories. And I bet he could, I bet he could easily fill a segment for you. So that's great. I hadn't even um, considered that you'd go. Hey, I got people in my pocket that I can give them a call and take care of this this segment. So that's that's really publicly. I need to congratulate Bud because he was always a help, and perhaps. He was sometimes trying to get even because, unfortunately or fortunately, Bud and I would say fortunately, I got him hired in the same store I worked in in and 1959. He, and he has talked about that that story to me. I, I think he, uh, I think if we go back and listen to the podcast, I think he uh, talks about getting hired there. But he had a he had a really nice career throughout the years of uh, working in the tackle business and then going into the wholesale part of the business. So he. he he done quite well doing that, so that uh, that must have been a fun, fun time for him. Now, do you have a call or a situation during the radio show that you still remember today? Like it just it was one of those that good or bad never went away. Uh, yeah, yeah, I have one. I had one call from Peter regarding killing of animals, including fish. And the guy called up and said, you know, and he identified himself as from Peter, which was good. And throughout the dissertation, at one point, I, he had gone through some things which we, we who fish and hunt probably would not agree with. And I said to him, you know, uh, I don't agree with what you say or the philosophy of what you think or you're doing. But I fought in a war, hopefully, so that you would have the right and privilege to say the things that you say and think. And I appreciate that. But I don't appreciate the message that you're trying to transmit over my program to my audience. And I hope you and your mom enjoy your dog food for breakfast tomorrow. Goodbye. Yeah, I, you know, I don't know how I would have handled a call like that, but that sounds like you you took care of it, and um, you know, and it's and it's one of those that kind of sticks with you for a long time. So that's that's kind of he never called again. There you go. <laughs> there you go. What was your what was your favorite type of fish to go after? Favorite species over the years? 
Oh, I've never been species or tackle specific. I like fly fishing. I like saltwater fishing. I like big, big fish. I like little fish. My favorite fish probably is from my childhood, and I'd say crappie. Love to eat them. Love to catch them. Uh, I've caught halibut at 250 pounds and sturgeon at 300 pounds and salmon at 40 and 50 and steelhead in the nothing in the 20 pounds but over 15 a couple uh, and the warm water fish biggest small biggest largemouth I caught was with a guide over at John Day our friends over at Maha Outfitters. We're taking the boat out at the lake up there, and I saw in 10, 12 inches of water was covered with leaves. I saw the leaves were rough around, and there was no breeze. I'm saying to myself, what is going on? Those leaves are, are moving. There's got to be something. I grabbed the rod and threw the lure into the pile of leaves, and wham! In 10 inches of water, I get a five-pound largemouth bass. And Steve Fleming, the guide, sees the bass, and the picture hung at the local tavern up there for a number of years, like 10, 12 years. And it took a long time till somebody caught something bigger. But Steve still says, you know, uh, you're, you're crazy. Fish, fish where people don't. And I said, yeah, but the fish doesn't know that. The fish, all he knew was there was amount of shade there, and the shade attracted the little minnows because they were safe from getting sunburned, and the birds can't see them under the leaves, but the other big fish can. So that's where, where it was, like in 10 inches of water, 5-pound, 21-inch 20, largemouth. Hasn't let me off the hook on that one. <laughs> It doesn't take a lot of water for uh, for bass. Uh, it really surprises me sometimes. I will um, I'll throw uh, a plastic or a, a lure right at the shore, and you'll think, oh, you know, I I've hit the shore, and then all of a sudden, you'll get a big hit like that. So I think that's a really good tackle tip for folks. You know, if you if you're fishing along and you throw something against the shore, don't be surprised if it. Uh, if it gets hit, because there's uh, there's bass laying in there waiting to uh, to take it. Yeah, what they feed on for the most part is little fish or smaller fish, and the smallest fish are going to be associated with the uh, the shore during a period of time during the hatch, and also. The next size up, the ones two and three inches that feed on those little half inches are there, and the bass feed on the two threes, the bigger fish do. Sure. So yeah, you I mean, think that's, like that's, a fish. If I'm hungry, where am I going to be? <laughs> that's right. Uh, that's that's right. And, you know, one of the things that you and I were talking about a little earlier was uh, if I were a fish, where would I want to be? <laughs> so I wanted to pose that question to you. Well, in all my years of trying to advise people, one of the first things I would like them to learn is that wherever you're fishing, learn a half mile of that stream or lake. And when I say a half mile, 
I want you to walk up or down or fish up or down the shoreline for a half mile so that you know where every rock, stump, limb, and log is at and what the surface of the water looks like during a muddy condition, the clear conditions, spring water, fall water, whatever. The colors change, the fish change their locations, but they don't leave that half mile. And you need to learn that once you've accomplished looking at the surface of a half mile, you can practically apply that information to almost any other spot you want to go to. It looks like this at home. What's it look like on this lake? You, that's one of the things. And the second thing is what's the conditions of the air? Is it a hot, sunshiny, 100-degree day? If you were a fish, where are you going to be? You're going to be in water deep enough that the birds can't see you, and you're going to be in the shade because you don't really like the sun. You like the heat, but you don't like the sun. So if you find a nice shady spot, you're more likely to find fish than you're fishing in an open 10-foot water on a 100-degree day. Now, you can do what we used to do with the Bass Club. We had our campgrounds up at Brownlee Reservoir, and the wife and I would put out a beach umbrella over the side of the boat, and it only made about a 10-foot cone of shade. Can you envision that? Mm-hmm. Now, you take the 10-foot coat of shade, and you pull off from the bank about 20, 30 feet into about 8 or 10 feet of water and sit there and eat your sandwich and leave the umbrella, create its shade cone in the water. Now you can start fishing for crappie. You don't cast. You just throw the jig at 8 feet of the line over the side and go twitch, twitch, and you start catching them because they'll accumulate that shade and they won't leave it. We, after having filled a bucket or two, Hartman and several other members of the club at that time came over and said, what are we doing that you're not doing? What are you guys fishing with? What color? I said, well, we're using four-pound tests, and I would hold up the lure and show it to them. And they never once got the idea that we weren't casting. We would just throw it over into the shade cone and lift up another fish. So if you can create your own environment that the fish like, you're going to find them. They love to be under buildings where there's shade. They love to be under trees that are low-hanging with shade. Be someplace where you'd be if it was hot, in the shade. And that is so important. Uh, on a sidebar, uh, i got to tell you a quick little story about Bud Hartman. One year, we were at um, Prineville Reservoir. Now, I was out pretty hardcore bass fishing. I had gone up the, what they call the no-wake zone, and I had been up there quite a distance. And as I was leaving to go up there, Bud and, and uh, his wife, Marsha, were in their boat, and they were dropping off some uh, markers. You know, and they were about a foot-in-diameter marker to mark where the fish were. And they had two, two or three of them out there. And uh, so we did, myself and my partner, we headed on up. We were, we were fishing, and we came back, and they're still there. And they were making kind of a figure eight through those two markers and catching some of the most wonderful-looking crappies that you've ever seen in your life. And it was doing exactly what you were just telling your story about. It was creating an artificial shade under that big marker. 
and the fish would congregate to those markers. And they, they by the end of the day, they had several very, very nice uh, crappie all ready to, uh, to prepare for dinner. So no, absolutely, 100%. You create shade uh, and let's sit. They, the fish, I'm sure, will congregate right there. Yeah, it is the biggest crop I ever caught was under an overhanging willow tree full of shade trying to skip cast a a jig in there. Uh, I only had about two foot between the limbs and the the water. And once I got the jig back in there far enough, the shade was deep enough, the 14-inch crop, he said, I'll give you, give it up. You know, he let me catch him. (laughs) There you go. Now, I, I wanted to uh, kind of divert here for just a second because this, this thought came into my mind, and I don't want to—I don't want to lose the uh, the thought that I had. And that is, when you were younger. So this is going to be the '60s and the '70s. Um, did you get to fish the Willamette or the Columbia River much? Every day, because I worked at a sporting goods store and I didn't go to work till noon, so. I was up at Oregon City probably four mornings a week, uh, fished for salmon for a couple hours. And in those days, you could fish it at the grinders and around the tunnel and various places of water that are now closed, uh, as well as, you know, the standard places they fish today. Or you could go up to Clackamas, uh, fish with a man by the name of Norris Wellbaum, really one of the greater salmon fishermen in that area at that time. Um, he had a homemade 16-foot plywood and fiberglass wooden sled with a 20-horse motor, and we would go up to Clackamas, up to Eagle Creek anyway, and salmon fish for a couple hours, come home with a couple of fish, and go to work. And so... Over those years, then, you must have watched the river change tremendously. I remember, oh. enough, I remember the log rafts that used to sit around, but they're long gone now. Uh, log rafts are gone probably from everything in the, in the Willamette itself, at least below the falls. Um, and down on the Multnomah Channel, you might still find some if you can. And if you do, you should, you're not, we're not supposed to say this, but if you could fish between the logs and get that lure down in the shade about four logs in, it's really quite fun. You yeah, get into I, the shade of the, the weeds and the vegetation down there, and you'd be surprised what's lurking around. I will uh, I, I'll give you a quick little uh, update fishing uh, update that uh, it was, this was last year my uh, daughter who's uh, who goes out with me occasionally we headed out on the Willamette down um, you know, right downtown actually uh, behind um, the island behind Ross Island and we had found an old abandoned um, kind of the uh, the frame of an old floating house so there was about four or five logs together and um, she's not She's not one that really likes to catch a lot of bass because it does take a little work. But there was a school of perch in there. I mean, a lot. And 
So I, I set the uh, anchor lock on my boat, and she started fishing, and all of a sudden she started catching them. And as I moved closer and closer to those two or three logs that were tied together, the fishing got better and better. And I told her, I said, drop your line right between the, the two logs. And uh, it took me an hour to get her away from catching those those uh, perch. They weren't big. They were they were all small. But just the, just the success rate that she was having um, took forever, just took forever uh, to get her away from it. So... Uh, 100%. You find some logs, you got to fish around them. Well, the same, the same thing applies in the ocean. And the ocean, you've got the uh, black sea bass. You go to British Columbia and Alaska, and if you're fishing offshore, and you can find, find some vertical rock structure that's got kelp growing off of it, you can see if it's vertical with your sonar, your mm-hmm. fish finders, within 50 yards of that rock uprising, you'll find a school of three to five pound black sea bass. And we would fish for them with fly rods and a jig. Yeah. And you'd, you'd get onto them and it'd be like, and they're all going two to five pounds. Mm-hmm. And you put them on a fly rod and they're great for two runs and then turn them loose and catch another one. Wow. That would be fun. Now, as you, you know, like you, you had said that you were on the radio for 23 years. Is that, is that what I remember you saying? Yes. Uh, you transitioned from there to what I remember as the Outback Angler. Tell me a little bit about how that got going. At the same time I was doing radio, I was writing for the Freshwater News for about the same period of time, length of time. And... In writing for the news, they wanted me to cover cars, a lot of boating. I told them I would write about it, but only where it applied to people who towed boats or RV vehicles or lived outdoors, that sort of thing. And Subaru came out with a new car called the Outback. And I talked with the various PR people at their national headquarters, and I asked him, I said, what? Is it equipped or will it tow tow anything? Because if it won't tow anything, my readership isn't going to read about it. And so he called me back and said, yeah, it'll tow so many pounds. And I said, what's the tongue weight? What will it accommodate tongue weight-wise? I don't know. What's the tongue weight? So he went and checked, called me back later and said the other and said, "Uh, will I come to the introduction of the new car to port in Vancouver? I said, yeah. And went over, and at some point, he looked me up in the crowd and said, how come you ask me those questions? You're the only writer in the whole country that asked whether it was had a tow capacity and what it was, and with brakes and without brakes and tug weight, et cetera. And I told him why, and he said, that's unusual, really strange. What do you think of the new car? I said, you really want to know what I think of it? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I think it's a really, really great-looking car, but you're trying to sell it to the wrong audience. And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, there's three things that I can see right now that make it difficult. You've made a car for the outdoors, absolutely the car that they're all looking for, and you don't want to 
you're not really interested. You, your interest as market is you're telling us through the ad campaign that you're after people 40 to 60 years of age that make 25 to 50,000 a year, school teachers, doctors, people who have need of absolute quality to get to work on time. Dependability is the biggest thing. And you want to talk to those 60-year-olds that make 50,000 who got to go to work. I said, you're missing the boat. I said, you've, you don't want to talk to your competitor. Any, any young couple around that's married got a pickup, Toyota pickup. They've got a wife, a dog, and one and a half kids and a toy. They've got a boat, a trailer, a water ski, snowmobile, something they want to tow behind their pickup with all their gear. And you don't want to talk to them because they're not 50 or 40. And I said, the guys that I know about that are 20 to 35 have got those other um, you know, encumbrances. They'd be an ideal market for you. But you don't want to talk to them. But I say that 20 to 35 kids are growing up with a magic card in their pocket that says they can walk in, and with that magic card, they can charge or get any car you got on your lot, and they're not in that age group. And you're not talking to them. You're not advertising to them. They fish. They hunt. They do all the outdoor stuff. And so they're, they're not old enough. You don't want to talk to them. They don't make enough. You don't want to talk to them. And they can afford to buy your car, and you still don't want to talk to them. I said, that's what's wrong with your ads. And you show the car as being one that can go anyplace, do anything, and get away from everybody, if you remember the crocodile ads. Oh, yeah. Well, those crocodile ads said they could get away from anything. And that's not 40 to 60. That's 20 to 35. So he said, would you stick around after this was all over and, and tell somebody else that? I said, okay. So I stuck around. They tried in the president of Subaru Japan, president of the ad agency, president of Subaru America, regional vice president, and marketing director for the Northwest, and asked me to explain it to him again. I did and took a little more time. They asked how would you introduce it? I had some ideas, and I told them. And they said, you'll hear from us. A month later, they call up, would you come down and pick up your new car? And at that point, we worked on marketing uh, directions and program, and we changed things a whole bunch. And I got to travel for the next 15 years as the Outback Angler doing promotional work for them around the country. Wow, that uh that is a uh, a great a great story. I did not I had not heard how you how you got involved with that. Um but for all of those folks out there on the listening to the program that are Subaru owners because there's a jillion of us here in the Northwest, uh uh please keep using those Subarus. I think they're um one of the best things that ever came out for the for the Northwest. So um, if I told you some of the places I've been someday, you'd be amazed with the Subaru, oh, towing I, a boat. 
I've got one. I, I can tell you that little that little car can get places that it it shouldn't. But it's uh... now. How did you get into the cooking part though? Because I remember, you know, not that many years ago that uh, you know we'd go to the uh, shows, the, the Northwest Outdoor Show, Seattle Show, and you'd be there cooking. So how did that transition happen? Well, I have I started cooking when I was a, a small child, thirteen, fourteen. Folks, he eventually owned a grocery store, and I could either carry out groceries or I could cook dinner. I'd rather cook because I could eat something I wanted. Um, Subaru's cooking came about during that transition of introducing the cars. One of the promotional things that we did was we would go and do lunches or presentation uh, dinners for super dealerships around the country. And they sent me to a lot of them. And my partner in, in the office at Subaru, we had a barbecue wagon on wheels, smoker and a gas barbecue, that we would take to various places. And you would do pre-prep the food and choose a selection of whether you wanted barbecued salmon or uh, a Western-style steak deal or bratwurst, you know, whatever the choice of stuff may be. And we were going to dealerships. And we'd give them a luncheon and an attaboy and, and down the road to the next place. At any rate, that cooking started there. We had the equipment. And the show producers said, would you come in and do a seminar or two, and some of the manufacturers wanted me there for seminars. So we went. We introduced Subaru. They became a sponsor for the sports shows. And then as part of the sponsorship, um, I guess the guys, Bill and his buddies, but his dad actually started, they started the idea of outdoor camp cooking. And I was fairly good at that. And so we developed the camp cooking, and I think we did it for about 14 years, something like that. Well, yeah, because I, I don't know how long you did it, but I, but I do remember going to the show, and I, you know, I would watch uh, when you got into the booth and started cooking. And, um, you know, I'm not going to tell you that I ever tried to copy any of it because, I, you know, I'm not uh, – not that good at cooking, although I, I, I do make a pretty mean peach cobbler in a uh, in, uh, in a Dutch oven. But other than that, I'm I'm just pretty good at eating. So, <laughs> so I always enjoyed enjoyed watching your your presentations. So during that period of time, now were you still doing a lot of fishing, uh, also, or were you so busy traveling that you didn't really have time? Uh, travel included fishing half the time. You might take a group of 24, 25 uh, dealers or dealer employees on a hosted trip to Alaska and be up there for two weeks at a time. Wow. So I got, I got to fish as well as travel, and I still fish. Um, my cooking partner, or I was his cooking partner, whatever, Herb Good, uh, who's also retired down his mid-70s, uh, probably one of the best salmon fishermen 
that has ever been around in the Northwest. Um, he takes me out salmon fishing once every fall, and I get to catch a couple. I caught a couple last year. But I don't go as much as I used to, and I find availability of bank space in Spokane to be almost non-existent. And that's because the handicapped people, people anyway. Pardon? Is that because no, they don't. People? The Bass and Pan Fishing Club in in Portland, you guys have put in fifteen or more than a dozen fishing platforms or been instigational in their existence or upkeep. Uh, Spokane's got twenty seven miles of lakes within a quarter mile of my house. They do not have one handicap fishing access platform in that space. Part of a state park. I did they don't believe in people fishing from the bank up here. I didn't yeah, I've been I've been to Spokane many times. I didn't I did not I've not fished it though. And I did not realize that um uh, that they were not as active, you know, putting in those those access points because Washington does work pretty hard on on some of their fishing things that they do, such as warm water fishing and that kind of thing. But so Washington, if you're listening, you might want to start looking at putting in some access points. You've got some folks. The nearest one that I'm aware of is about 30 miles. Oh, so it's quite a distance then. Yeah, and in Portland, I could get on a city transit bus, and they would drop me off at the dock with my wheelchair. Yeah, that uh, that that's true. Now, you did tell me, and this is diverting a little bit, you did tell me about taking the train out to, was it the Deschutes or the, or the um, John Day River for fishing? Well, back in the mid-60s, uh, Ted Marks, my high school fishing companion, and I went on an overnight trip up the Deschutes River on the, the old train. And the conductor would leave you at the appointed place, and he'd pick you up tomorrow at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You could go home. Well, we're walking up the railroad tracks towards where we're going to go camp, and there's a cut in the tracks. That is to say the ground around it was such that there was a a gravel berm up both sides of the, the tracks. And I could see this rattlesnake laying on the side, on the rock, sunning himself. I mean, he's going blink, blink, blink like a neon sign. Really a nice big one. And Ted, my partner, is ahead of me about 15, 20 feet, and he's got the only gun. I said, Ted, could you bring your 22 back here? I want to see it for a minute. Sure. So he trots it back. He's gone by the snake twice now and hasn't seen it. And gives me the gun, and I walked over and dispatched the snake, and we proceeded to do what we do. And at that point, his vocabulary changed. He sounded like an irate truck driver for about a half an hour. Mostly, you son of a gun, don't hum. And uh, don't want you ever do that again. Why? I said, you didn't know the snake was there. <laughs> You'd have seen it the first time. But anyway, he's uh, he didn't like the idea that we necessarily let that uh, him slip by the snake twice. I will say he never loaned me his twenty-two again. <laughs> well, I, 
I found the snake story fascinating because we had talked a little bit about that. But, I, you know, and I didn't grow up in an era when I would have taken the train and gotten dropped off at a at anywhere and uh, and then and then caught it the next day to come back home because I, you know I'm I just didn't I didn't grow up in that that time. But it, it's so fascinating to to think about like you could have taken a train. And uh, I'm I'm sure there wasn't a depot out there. They just dropped you off and said, "Hey, we'll be back by tomorrow, and we'll stop for you." So that was uh, that was kind of fun. And the snake story is is uh, is great because um, letting him walk by there twice is uh, is something that uh, he probably never forgot. Probably probably remembered it most of his life. So that was that. Was uh, and every time he thought about it, the vocabulary never changed. <laughs> yeah, I bet, I bet not. Now, you know, I looked down at my I looked down at my notes here, and I don't want to forget this this bit of a tackle tip because you guys are out fishing quite a bit. You were telling me about cleaning a catfish with a pocket knife. Um, Your friend uh, from the Baskell Jack Blue that I fished with grew up in Arkansas, and he was very backwoodsy. I mean, really backwoodsy. Um, and an Indian had showed him in his youth how to clean bullhead catfish with a pocket knife. He said, these guys need pliers and nails and hammers and skinners and, uh, you know. Yeah, it takes need, a whole you, to clean one. Yeah. He says, all you need is a sharp pointed pocket knife and a rag. And if you can envision what I'm trying to say, I'm going to use the term V-Y. You only make two cuts on the fish. The first cut is behind the dorsal fin, forward at an angle to the bone structure on the head. So you're making a single cut forward on the back of the catfish, behind and below the dorsal fin, sticking up. Mm-hmm. Now take the point of the knife. You've made a V cut, right? Mm-hmm. That that because it in. If you go forward, it'll enlarge and becomes a V. You take and put the point of the knife in the bottom of the V, and you run the knife all the way down the top of the back of the fish to the tail. Just cut the skin. Now you take the fish and the rag, put your pocket knife down, take the fish and the rag, grab the fish head in your right hand and with the rag grab the body on the other hand and you break the head off from the body of the fish by pulling down on the head and up on the the body. Mm -hmm. You can see snapping it in half. Yeah. Okay, when you snap it in half, you will pull out with the head, the head, the guts, everything comes out at that point, pops up. Now the next trick is you pull down on the head. You're still holding the fish in the rag, but you pull down on the head and the gut part using your thumb or finger to hold on to it. But you must pull directly straight down. If you pull out, you'll tear the skin, and then you'll have to go back and skin it. Okay? If you pull straight down, it peels like a banana, and with one whoop, you pull down and you've got head, feathers, bladder, and skin all in one hand and a body in the other. 
if you can envision that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, in 30 seconds or less, you can do a, you can do a fish a minute with no problem. Absolutely no problem. Uh, now you go to a couple of saltwater rinses and chill them. And if you want to fillet it off of the bone structure, you can. Or you can go ahead and fry it uh, like you have. Wow, that uh, that sounds a lot easier than the, the the ones that I've gotten this past year. That I was trying to fillet them and and do all kinds of oh. crazy things with them. So, no, if if you can, we made a film uh, for Prineville Reservoir on how to do that very thing. They may still have a copy of it, and if they don't, Kershaw and I, we made a flyer for Kershaw on how to skin those catfish with a, their pocket knife in a minute. Wow, so maybe... Also on te- pardon? Well, maybe searching uh, YouTube, you you might find that. You might, know. yeah, You it's on YouTube, as a matter of fact, under Northwest Outdoors via KYVE Yakima. Yeah, so if folks want to see that, that is a uh, sounds like a great way to clean them because you'll you'll sometimes get a few bullhead and you you know if you if you want to clean them up and and uh, make make dinner out of them there you go and cleaning them with a pocket knife that's a that's a great great tackle tip well we've spent quite a bit of time so uh, on our interview so in in the last few minutes that we've got here. Kind of wrap up your um, your your um, job history. Tell me some of the things that you enjoyed most about about over the years of of working in the outdoors. Everything about it, from the time I was twelve till now, I still think in terms of how things could be better or who did things that are wrong. Um, I don't think I ever caught a fish that I didn't like. I don't think I ever uh, did anything with them. You know, I would have to say I'm probably not the greatest conservationist in as much as I like to eat, <laughs> and I do like to eat fish, all kinds. Um, I will turn fish back, and I don't feel bad about it. But I've enjoyed every single moment that I've been out there fishing, whether it was successful or unsuccessful, because if my eyes are open, I'm learning something every second, even at 90. That puts it in such a nice package. You know, I'm not I'm not species-specific. I'm not tackle-specific. Um, I'm not – I don't go home and pout if I don't catch anything. I was out. I had a great time all day. And if I don't like who I'm fishing with, I don't fish with them again. Fish with people you enjoy. That's part of the deal. It is. It is all part of uh, of going fishing. Is you you have to enjoy it, whether you're catching or not. You have to go out and enjoy it. I, t- I totally agree. It's not competition unless you figure that the fish is smarter than you are. So true. Yeah. If you're if you're um, if the fish are outsmarting you, then then you just have to you have to be one percent smarter than the fish. Yep. Yeah. So that means I'm not very smart. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, this has been a great hour, and um, I really appreciate you coming on the program. And we will we will have you on again, Hobart. Uh, if I'm still here, I'd be very happy to join you in time. Well, I can't thank Hobart enough for coming on the podcast. I've listened to him for many, many years. As he says in the podcast, he's uh, 90 years old. He's still um, enjoying life, still getting out and doing a little bit of fishing. So I just can't tell you enough how much I enjoyed it. And I hope that everyone who listened to the podcast enjoyed Hobart's stories and likes listening to him. Now, I do want to get Hobart back on. We're going to talk some more fishing uh, type things, tackle tips, that type of stuff. So he will be back on uh, coming up in the future. If you have show ideas or feedback or you'd like me to contact Hobart with a question, please email me at gonefishingpdx at gmail.com. I will have that in the show notes, so if you missed it, you can always look right in the show notes. You'll see my email address. Well, I'd like to thank everybody. Until next time, this has been Don Clark, Talking Bass in PDX, and I'll see you on the Backcast. Mm-hmm.